This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Israel's new government is getting into its stride and prompting a backlash. There's a changing of the guards in the IDF. And we'll have a long and in-depth conversation with the veteran Middle East watcher and New York Times columnist, Tom Friedman. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy Two Jews on the News from Keshe podcasts. Definitely no shortage of news in my neighborhood, Jonathan. There's a lot to go through. But uh, maybe there are other things to talk about before just diving into, you know, judicial reforms and such. I know there's so much going on where you are. And it's in a way slightly shaming that the big story for a second week and maybe even a third or fourth week in this part of the world has still been really Prince Harry and this book, um, Spare, brilliantly titled, I must say, in which he vents all his frustration at being the spare, not the heir. It is a total phenomenon. I mean... It's very rare for me to feel any envy for the royals at all, because as you know, I am that rare thing of a pro-Windsor Republican, meaning I think we should abolish the thing because it's so bad for their family. And I think that position has been mightily vindicated in recent weeks when you just see how awful it is for all of them. And therefore, I really would not wish on even my worst enemy to be born a royal. But a little spasm of envy did kick in when I read that he had sold... 400,000 hardback books in Britain alone on day one, making this the fastest, biggest selling non-fiction book ever. I mean, those of us who thought we were doing fine with uh, in our sales before suddenly realised, oh, right, so books can sell those kinds of numbers. That's pretty amazing. But also, I think the it, it in some ways, it's a surprise. I mean, I did think that by the fact that he was being interviewed everywhere, meant that people would think, ah, I've kind of, I got the idea, I know what's in there. Obviously not. People are gripped. It will seem in a minute that I am the Republican uh, between the two of us that thinks that uh, monarchy should be abolished. I don't, by the way. I'm, I put up a wall and I'm completely not listening to any of this news coming up from the Harry and Meghan thing, not only because I'm so sort of entrenched in the Israeli news and what's going on here, but also because I seem to remember them saying they want to be left alone. So I'm trying to adhere to that original statement about, you know, a gazillion interviews ago and Netflix projects ago and books ago. But I remember they wanted to be left alone. So I'm completely immune to any of this. I'm, really, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe this is very strange. I have to admit this. But there's a few things that kind of trickle down even in through that wall. Um, some, you know, references to his bodily parts that I'm not going to say out loud because my mother's listening to the podcast, you know, and other things that make you kind of wonder, does one not ever regret writing such a detailed personal autobiography? But I guess it sells books. So that's that's that. That is the it most really intelligent does. take I can and give about something I didn't read or listen to. No, I'm mean, really impressed because, you know, we always talk about, well, if you've been living on Mars, <laughs> then you won't know that you are the person on Mars. You are our Mars. And I anchor the evening We've, news. So that is a difficult thing to do, right? I could just put my fingers a, in my ears real, when they do the Harry piece and go, la, 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 la. I just, I, you know, I try to not listen. Yes. It's a real achievement. And I think quite admirable because, as you say, that's what they say they wanted. Um, and nevertheless, though, he has captured somehow people's imagination. Credit to the writer of the book, the ghostwriter, who also did Andre Agassi's really acclaimed autobiography. He's obviously got a bit of a thing 
in these unhappy but hyper-privileged people. Um, he knows how to speak to them. He's a brilliant interviewee. I mean, Harry did a lot of these interview interviews. He was really, you know, he was compelling. He held my interest for 90 minutes in the interview he did with the British broadcaster here on Sunday, ITV. Um, so, look, uh, yeah, a phenomenon, and he's done very, very well. And uh, but, but is it true really that there's sort of this divide in which, like, the Brits are very, very angry and the Americans are more sympathetic? Like, that is true. Oh, yeah, no, it's dividing okay. in all kinds of ways, which are quite fascinating. So Team Harry and Meghan is definitely Americans are really on side, partly because they feel flattered, I think, that they've chosen to live in America. Mm -hmm. And because they constantly say, look, we had to leave that horrible racist backwater called Britain and instead come to the land of milk and honey, <laughs> namely the United States. So it's flattering. The whole Harry no and Meghan story problems racism is, at all. Right, as if, you know, and but it's sort of flattering to, to the Americans to say this is implicitly, this is so much more welcoming a place than Britain. Mm -hmm. But there is a generational divide, or was in this country, where if you were pro-Harry Meghan, it tended to mean you were younger. He has got this sort of persona of the woke prince that's slightly dented by admitting that he kept tally of how many Taliban he was killing. That's left a few of his progressive defenders feeling slightly shifting in their seats and staring at their feet. It's made it a bit awkward. But no, it's, it runs and runs and runs. And that's partly because of the argument I've always had about the royal family, which is it is a spectacle. It's a show that they lay on for everyone else. But it comes at a very cruel cost to them. I mean, it's not doing them any favours. And that argument used to, you know, hit a brick wall, to be honest, when I would make that. But I feel now there are more takers for it because people can see that they are basically like zoo animals who are sort of caged and we watch them and enjoy their dysfunction to the tune of it's apparently 1.4 million books around the world or in America and Canada and Britain, 400,000 here. So, you know, big success for him. But you think, what is, you know, at what cost? Anyway, we've got a new government in Israel. And I, I mean, you noticed, huh? it was, it was just enough. The appointments, the people who were there was enough to send a chill down the spines of many, many people in the wider Jewish world in diaspora. We're going to be talking about that with our special guest, uh, vaunted colonist, Thomas Friedman. We'll get into all of that. But um, that was even before they'd done anything. Last week, we talked about the judicial reform package that was unfolded. So bring us up to, up to date with what actually is being done rather than just uh, announced, as it were. Well, first of all, a week after the presser, and we talked about this at length last uh, episode, Yariv Levine, the justice minister, unveiled his judicial overhaul. Now, yesterday, he published the draft bills. So we officially know what's going to be in it or what the government plans to put in it. Two main pillars of this judicial reform at this stage. It's only the beginning. One is forbidding the high court from intervening in basic laws, meaning that the uh, legislative branch has the authority and not uh, the judiciary in any way. And also it will grant governments total control over the appointment of judges. Uh, that means the coalition will have the majority in the appointment committee. That is not the case today. Now, you know, I have to sort of amend what I said last time because you asked me, uh, and I think uh, it was a very important question, what if this stage of the reform has anything to do with Netanyahu's trial? And I said to you, obviously, and a lot of the Netanyahu opponents would say, and not only would say that they're trying to make it seem as if nothing has anything to do with it at this stage. There will be other stages that will discuss weakening the attorney general, things like that, but it's not in the plan right now. But I would want to amend that a little bit because if the important part of it is that the coalition is in charge of appointing judges to the Supreme Court, then there are two things to notice. One, in a few years, if Netanyahu is indeed convicted with the 
let's say, rhythm of Israeli-Israeli justice system, he will try to appeal to the Supreme Court. So it's very important who the judges are that are put in place there. And another thing, it sends a message to the three judges that today preside over his trial in the district court, right? You three want a promotion. One day you want to grow up and go, not grow up, one day you want to be judges uh, in the Supreme Court. Well, we're now the ones who will decide this completely, uh, so, so that, of course, has some sort of a relation to, to the Netanyahu trial. And, and I think this heartened those of us watching from afar, it's not as if the Israeli public are just sitting on their hands watching this passively. There were photographs, mo- footage of a kind that I feel, felt I haven't seen for some time, which were m- protests of some scale mm-hmm. in uh, Tel Aviv against this government and what it means. I mean, it's very hard for me to tell from from this distance. You'll tell me more. Was this just the kind of usual suspects, the very liberal Ashkenazi aging Israel of the Haaretz newspaper and the you know knights at the listening to the Philharmonic Orchestra, or was this you know was, was this a was this did it reach a wider? cohort of people saying, no, we don't want this government? Well, first of all, it was a lot of people. Was it beyond the Tel Avivian uh, liberal crowd? I'm not sure. I think the important thing to notice is first that this was a first of a long line of protests that that are planned. Uh, Gantz and uh, um, both Gantz and Lapid, leaders of the opposition, called or said they would join in on these protests. So that will probably make the whole thing a little bit bigger. And also we have to say, and we said this last time as well, that the general public in all of the polls have an objection to this reform, or at least to some parts of it, even if they are Netanyahu supporters. So that that is also important. Are the Netanyahu supporters in that protest? Were they there? No, they weren't, obviously. But I think it's a it's an important question. By the way, these things always have a dynamic, right? You know where they start. You don't know where that where that will lead. And when you hear people in the Knesset, newly minted members of coalition from Itamar Ben-Gvil's uh, party, especially saying that you should arrest the opposition leaders for uh, supporting these protests, then that will also, I think, create a volume for the next protest, which will be this Saturday, right? Where uh, uh, this this episode will drop on Friday. You know, that sounds very bad in itself. We should just pause on that for a minute when a member of Knesset says you should arrest the opposition leaders. Again, this is a marginal character, and his this is a very extreme thing to say. It's not going to happen, but it makes Israel sounds like sound like Turkey, and I think that's a very problematic place to be. Yeah, it's the lock her up maneuver. This Mm -hmm. is not Mm -hmm. how you settle political arguments with um, jailing your opponents. I mean, you know, uh, beyond the people on the streets, there are, there's been an assumption, I think you and I have talked about it, that yeah, 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 there's politicians, they make all these noises. But in the end, Israel's institutions are robust, they're solid, they will defend themselves. And lots of people, admirers of the Supreme Court over the decades have always thought, don't worry, those terrible things that you read about, and it can't happen because the Supreme Court won't allow them to happen. That was about other things. When it's an attack on the Supreme Court itself, what tools, what weapons or powers, even politically, actually, in terms of the argument made in the public square, is there anything the Supreme Court can do to defend itself from this attack? Or does it have to say, well, that's the politicians and we'll leave it to them? I think that's a probably the most important question and the answer to that we will see in the coming weeks. And I think the there is 
one thing to do, right? It's never been used, not in the U.S., I believe, and not in Israel either, but it is to declare that the reform is, which is an amendment to uh, the basic law of the judiciary, that it is an unconstitutional constitutional amendment, right? That is still in the power of the court to do, and they can do that. That will, of course, uh, put everything in a collision course, but it's still in their power to do that. I think it will be a very interesting thing to, to see if they will. And again, the the power of the people, right? The more people that are in the streets, the more the court might feel like it is supported by the a majority of the Israeli public. I don't know how this will play out. There's a, a huge level of, a huge degree of uncertainty here. But I think that that is something that we will have to watch and see if if, if happens. It's legally and sort of almost uh, in terms of jurisprudence, a fascinating idea that the notion of robbing the Supreme Court of its right to interpret the basic law is itself a violation of the basic law. Mm -hmm. Fascinating um, and sort of slightly circular. We'll have to see how that plays out. I said at the top that there's been a changing of the guards. You didn't mean that metaphorically. You meant it literally. uh, Yeah, well, in the Israeli military, Mm -hmm. I mean... um, Again, I think people outside Israel don't fully appreciate the extent to which the IDF, even if not officially, is a kind of political player in the country, that the position of chief of staff of the IDF is so significant, it's produced so many political leaders. They have the ability to sometimes call out you know, politicians on some of their movements, and they are listened to in a way that is just not familiar at all. In Britain, I would say not really in the United States. They're just not in the sort of public mix anything like as much as in Israel. So this is a big deal even for people who aren't just sort of obsessed with, you know, personnel in the military branch. This is (laughs) something as part of the, you know, public life of the country. Of course, if you, you know, Obviously, the military in this country is uniquely positioned because it is uh, there's mandatory service and it is the army of the people. So obviously, the person who stands and is in charge of it has uh, this prominence that many other people don't. We've seen many, many uh, heads of uh, um, chiefs of staff of the Israeli military go into politics. I think since Ehud Barak, there has not been one that hasn't tried Many have failed. Many have sort of maybe tried in the very early preliminary stages and then walked back. But all of them have tried. So, yes, Aviv Kochavi, Lieutenant General Aviv Kochavi, will end his term on Monday as the chief of staff of the IDF. And he will be replaced by Herzi Halevi, will take uh, office. Now, obviously, you know, Israel has had his fair share of wars, flare-ups, conflicts, threats to its existence, threats to its security. I think this is a very precarious, it's a precarious timing to take, to go into this position, not only because of all these threats, right, but also because of the internal strife in Israel and the discussions around what kind of military uh, is going to uh, be uh, or exist in this uh, country. And I remind you, and we talked about this, that there are two moves that are trying, uh, that Betzalus Motrich and Itamar Benville, the leaders of the far right in Netanyahu's coalition, are aiming for, right, and were, and were promised in the coalition. Agreements. One is uh, Smotrich wants to is a minister in the defense ministry, and he wants to head the civil administration. Basically, uh, this relates to the lives of settlers and Palestinians uh, in Judea and Samaria. And obviously, uh, Ben Gvir himself wanting to be uh, head of the policing force inside Judea and Samaria. All of this is uh, very problematic, and not not only there are other moves, and of course there are the people who are calling for the dismantling of the Palestinian Authority. Why am I telling you all this? Because Aviv Kochavi just a minute before leaving. Uh, 
uh, his uh, post, gave uh, uh, interviews to Israeli media. This uh, I, I interviewed him for the for our Saturday night uh, program, and I think that it's very interesting to hear what he has to say. Right, uh, vis-a-vis the Smotrich and the Ben Gvir trying to get parts of the hierarchy of the military, he says this can't happen. I told Netanyahu, I talked to him, this is something that can't happen. The military needs one clear hierarchy. Uh, so this is something that uh, he thinks that can't happen. He also says, listen, if you want to dismantle the Palestinian Authority, that's your legitimate decision as the politicians and the leaders of the country. Just know what the what the meaning of that will be. I think it's very interesting. And of course, as someone who hasn't spoken for four years, so I think that's an important person to listen to. I completely agree. I think the whole dynamic has altered because of the arrival of Ben Gvir and Smotrich in the roles that you mentioned. And there was a sort of early intimation of this with that clash uh, on the West Bank outside Hebron, I think, where mm-hmm. a soldier beat up a Jewish activist and said, you know, Ben Gvir's coming. Or somebody off mic said, you know, Ben Gvir's coming. And Ben Gvir and then the military said, you know, this is not how we behave. And they handed out a military punishment. And then Ben Gvir said, no, you shouldn't be doing this. You should be concentrating on the bad guys, not on our side, sort of thing, fighting the anarchists or whatever he said. And the military came back again and said, you know, so there is a battle going on here for who is in charge. The Does the military remain a separate and distinct branch that, you know, almost in a separation of powers way? Mm-hmm. Or is this going to be the plaything of politicians? And again, for people outside who I think are probably used to associating the military with the hawkish wing, the you know, right wing of, of the political spectrum. In Israel, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the military has often played actually, paradoxically, Dafka, I was meant to, I was about to say, <laughs> a sort of, you know, a, often producing leaders for the center left, from Yitzhak Rabin through to Ehud Barak and many others who didn't achieve quite that level. Mm-hmm. But also they are often the, the voice around the table that is actually cautioning against bellicose action. And people will have seen that brilliant movie, The Gatekeepers. I know this is slightly different because that's about people in intelligence. But it's again, it's people from the security, national security sort of echelon who in Britain or America, I think people would associate with the with the right or with the hawkish side, actually are often the voices uh, for restraint, for coming uh, to terms with the occupation and so on and therefore this really matters in the in the politics for all the reasons we've been saying um we have a big guest this week we do and let's get to him Tom Friedman is the New York Times foreign affairs op-ed columnist. He served as the paper's Beirut bureau chief, Jerusalem bureau chief, was a diplomatic correspondent in Washington. He is a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He's written seven critically acclaimed books, among them very well known from Beirut to Jerusalem, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, and Hot, Flat and Crowded. He's written extensively on foreign affairs, the Middle East, and globalization, environmental issues. He recently returned from his uh, trip, probably umpteenth time, to Israel. Uh, and we're so glad to have you on Unholy Tom, thank you so much for talking to us. Great to be with both of you. I'm going to talk about your recent visit, but I also want to mention that after the elections, right after the elections here in Israel, you wrote a column that was titled, The Israel We Knew Is Gone. Uh, And I remember reading it and kind of part of me feeling, well, the Israel you knew isn't gone. It just lost the election. But I wonder what you would, you know, what advice before we kind of get into everything else you would have for the liberal part of Israel that is feeling, you know, a bit, let's say, deep despair in the same things. Uh, maybe sort of feeling like it's gone. Um, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, um, we write our own headlines, so I can't say, oh, the editors did that to me. You know, it's just the opposite. I, I 
wrote a headline, you need to express uh, and draw attention to the fact this was not your normal Israeli election. That the people who have been brought into power and the agenda that they are bringing into power is one that both represents and if fulfilled would put paid to the Israel we have known. Um, And it's not particularly a a liberal Israel I was talking about, but an Israel that um, maintained a minimum of pluralism toward the Jewish world, an Israel that was left, right, or center, always committed to um, separation of powers and and the rule of law, an Israel that um, would not go out of its way to aggravate relations with uh, the Palestinians um, and make the uh, occupation worse at a time when it was already deeply fragile. I, I was just trying to express the fact that I was trying to set off an alarm that, ladies and gentlemen, something really big and important is happening here. And of course, I got the usual pushback, you know, from the left, oh, your Israel was a fantasy Israel. And oh, thank you for telling me. Gosh, I didn't know what was going on, you know. Uh, and then, of course, from the right, it was kind of there you go again. You know, Tom Friedman, the liberal, you know, uh, doesn't understand what's really going on in Israel. No, I, I, I got it. Um, and I simply wanted to send up a flare as high and as widely as I could that, folks, you got to pay attention to this. Something new and fundamental is happening. And if these red lines are all breached, the Israel you knew is over. Uh, So the headline may in its framing have been premature, but um, if I were to do it again, I would have written the exact same column, now only with more conviction and fervor. Let me be the midway point between your two groups of critics, left and right, and, and, and say, from the left, there you go again. And they're so often liberal allies or you know Jews who feel affinity to Israel often do this which is sounding the alarm mm-hmm. and you know we've both been doing this long enough that we've heard people do it over decades i remember you know in the 80s people saying look if ariel sharon is ever prime minister then you know it's all over and then i'll leave and it did happen and it wasn't all over and they didn't leave so again i i do see the point where you've enumerated them that these are red lines that have been crossed but what is it that conv- convinces you particularly that the that there won't be a sort of snapback to the Israel as was, that even that red lines move and that what seems existential and different now actually just becomes part of a new normal and, and will in a way be saying the same things in 10, 20 years time from now? It's a very good question, John. And um, again, I would go back to what was so worrying me. Um, like I covered the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. I'm sure at the time I probably wrote or thought like, wow, the Israel we knew is gone. But Menachem Begin and Ariel Sharon were committed to the rule of law. That that Likud was committed to the rule of law. Yonit can um, maybe comment on this better, but Menachem Begin, I can't imagine, ever would have contemplated this kind of legal change to Israel's legal structure as a partisan move. The, the case can be made that Israel needs judicial reform. And I've, I've read you know commentary on, on left and right. But when you are doing such a fundamental reform, of the separation of powers, to do that as a partisan action based on a tiny uh, minority and not as a national project where you convene people from across the spectrum, you study all the issues, you bring in expert witnesses. When you do that from a partisan action under the shadow 
of indictment or past indictment of the very people doing this, that's Banana Republic stuff. That's simply stuff I've never seen or contemplated in Israel. It would be as if Richard Nixon, at the height of Watergate, said, now let's do judicial reform, and I'm going to expand the Supreme Court. And by the way, I'm going to choose the new judges. And so there's something deeply corrupt about that. And that's a place we've never been before. I think the other place, John, we've never been before is that I think the Palestinian Authority could be, you know, on its last legs. Now, it's been pronounced on its last legs many times before. And again, this is just a a judgment call. But um, Israel's whole relation to the occupation and the fact that it has been a deluxe occupation from Israel's point of view, that is relatively low cost in money and human terms, cannot be understood outside of the fact that it had a collaborative Palestinian authority in the West Bank, ready to govern Palestinians and provide security assistance to Israel. And you take the PA out of the equation, and I just really can't imagine you know, what, uh, what will happen next. So if I can go to 30,000 feet for a second, and this may anticipate a, a, a future question. When I left Israel after this last trip, and I wrote this in a follow-up column, Israel is now living in a one-state reality. The way I look at the Lapid-Bennett partnership and government is that Israel was living in a one-state reality, and it had a leadership that said, we're going to behave in a very self-restrained way. We know we're living in a one-state reality. Some of us even embrace that. But we're going to behave in an unrestrained way. I think what the new government represents is Israel living in a one-state reality, and we're going to behave in an unrestrained way. And that, to me, is the, is the shift that's happened here. And so it's for all those reasons I wanted to draw attention to it. And I could have written the headline, Troubling Election in Israel. You know, uh, and, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I think the conversation we're having is very important for us as as people who care about Israel and follow it and for your listeners. You know, I, if we go back on time, you really are the one who set the ball rolling. And you suggested this is 2002. It feels like a millennia ago, right? You suggested uh, the Saudi initiative to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. You said essentially, right, Israel will withdraw to the 67 lines, establish a Palestinian state, and all of the uh, members of the Arab League would offer Israel full diplomatic relations and normalization. The first half of that seems as far away that, uh, as we yes. can imagine, right? You just discussed that. The second half, actually, interestingly enough, maybe paradoxically, seems like it could happen. And I'm specifically talking about Saudi Arabia. You know, the irony of all this is that Benjamin Netanyahu could be the leader to lead right now to normalization with Saudi Arabia. It could happen. So, um, obviously, I'm following that very closely, Yoni. And and I know a lot about Saudi peace initiatives. Um, And so, uh, let me tell you, the way I see the situation today, and uh, this could change, but this is how I see the situation today. Well, let's start, first of all, with motivation. I think Netanyahu's motivation is to say to Biden, Joe, Joe, Joe you and I, you and I, Mabad, as we say in Arabic, you and I, we can make peace in the, in the whole Middle East. We can end this conflict. You can go down to history. Don't pay attention to this court stuff. It's not, it's, it's, that doesn't involve you. Um, and what do you care who prays at the Wailing Wall? So that's, it's his attempt to leapfrog 
the political morass that he is in and, and I think exacerbating by enlisting America in this project. Now, let me state very categorically, I think Saudi-Israel peace would be a wonderful thing for both countries, for the world, and for relations between Jews and Muslims. And that's why I felt the same about the Abraham Accords. You know? And so one of the things I learned a long time ago is the way you get big change in the Middle East is when you get the big players to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, okay, if you wait for everyone to do the right thing for the right reasons, you wait forever. Uh, after the Abraham Accords, people said, but, 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 the, but the UAE just did this to get F-35s. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> they were out for weapons? Um, have you ever heard of the uh, Camp David deal? You remember that Camp David deal? They got a whole bloody army out of it, you know what I mean? Um, and, and 30 years of uh, military assistance. Ever hear of the Israel-Jordan piece? There's this little plane called the F-16 that was the um, uh, the cheese in that. So that doesn't bother me at all. Now let's go, though, to what, what actually is the Saudi position, as best I understand it, and this can, can change. So we all know it's, no, it's an open secret. You know, Netanyahu has met with MBS, um, as has the entire Israeli um, intelligence leadership over the years. And what they will tell you, what they will tell you is we have talked to the Saudis, and the Saudis have basically said to us, if you will get us F-35s or the most advanced weapon systems out of Washington, civil nuclear program, and most of all, just improve our relations with the Biden administration, we will enter into a normalization arrangement with Israel without regard to the Palestinians, with nothing for the Palestinians. So um, when I was told that uh, well, on my last trip, I said, well, I, I, got, I got to check this out, you know. And I'm, I'm a, I was immediately a little suspicious. I, I have huge respect for Israeli security services. When, when they are looking to search for an enemy who is threatening Israel, they're the people you, would, you can get that job done. They're very good at that. I think they're actually less good at reading the Arab uh, Muslim world. I think they, they can be suckered sometimes into getting a little carried away with winks and nods and not always hearing exactly what people are saying because Arabs are also very polite. So if you sit down with MBS, he'll tell you, ah, you know, I can't wait to have relations with Israel. We'll do high tech together. We'll fight Iran together. Kaza wa kaza wa kaza. But at the same time, I need some something from you. What, what did you say? I, I, need a, I need an it from you on the Palestinian issue. Why? For the very reason that this is important, okay? MBS understand that he's not just making peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. He's making peace between the Muslim world and Israel. He is the keeper of the two holy places in Islam. And by the way, he actually attended the World Cup, sat with um, uh, the leader of Qatar, and he noticed something at that World Cup. There were a lot of Arabs waving Palestinian flags. So the, what, what Israelis tend to hear from MBS is we, are, we have full Palestinian fatigue. We are disgusted. We're fed up with them. Uh, we're going to do whatever is in our interest. But I think what they're not hearing is there is a little conditionality in there. And that is we need an it from you on the Palestinian question. I don't know what that it is, he is telling them, Okay. And I don't even want to say it because the minute I say it, then it starts this or that. My sources, my insights may be wrong, but this is how I understand it. Now that it 
becomes very important because whatever that it is from the Palestinians takes us back to the Abraham Accords. Why did the Abraham Accords happen? Now we presented that Trump made peace between Israel and, 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 the, and the Gulfies, the, the UAE and Bahrain. What actually happened was along comes Jared Kushner and he inadvertently, out of his zeal and pro-Israeliness, tests Netanyahu. What does he do? He tells Dermer and Netanyahu, here's the map, here's the pen, you draw the line. You draw the line that will be politically saleable to you. So they drew Israel gets the next 30% of the West Bank and Palestinians get 70. The peace plan is published. And what happens? What happens is that Bibi can't accept it because his base, which we all knew, was not at 70% for Palestinians. They were at zero. And what happened? And God bless them. Trump and Kushner, who really didn't like Netanyahu, said, no, no, Bibi, you only get your 30 if you recognize the Palestinian 70. And Bibi was at zero. Now bring us to the present. You tell me, there's an it there that Bibi's gonna deliver for the Muslim world? I'm highly skeptical, okay, because of this background. Now, let me make very clear, I may be wrong. I may be misreading the Saudi position, that they will do it for zero. But let me add one more caveat. If I were hiring a lobbyist, the whole world to lobby for me in Washington. I'm Saudi Arabia. Would I hire Bibi Netanyahu to lobby a democratic Senate and a democratic administration? And again, I may be totally surprised. Everyone may be much more cynical than even I anticipate. So I, I caveat all of that. This, I'm dealing here with fragments of insight, but that's how I see the situation. I'm skeptical. It's, skeptical. No, I get that completely. I think it's fascinating because Many people, you, me, and many, many others for many years said the only way Israel will ever get any kind of accords with its neighbors is land for peace. Yeah. And then along comes the Abraham Accords, which show actually you can get peace deals without giving up any land. But I see your point, which is that Saudi Arabia is probably a different category. But I want to pick up on just because you took us there with Wisconsin and AOC, and that is what your read is, and this must take in the things you talked about first, this new government. What your read is of that, whether it is just campuses and AOC, significant by the way, but is it just them that are breaking from Israel? Or do you look around this landscape and see a more mainstream parting between Israel and America? Maybe not Joe Biden, who somebody I was speaking to this week said, you know, he's, Joe Biden's hard drive has been updated in many ways, but where it's still stuck 30, 40 years ago is on Israel. But other people, the next generation of Democrats, mainstream Biden-ish Democrats, are they, as you see things in the era of Ben Gvir and so on, are they going to move away from Israel in a very significant and perhaps irreversible way? You know, um, it, I, I, I hesitate to predict because this has been an ongoing process. Um, I see it and, and I get invited to speak to student groups on campuses and they they have no idea how to defend Israel in the grand existential sense even anymore. And they're very much on their heels. I think this has been a slow eroding process generationally. And this government would certainly accelerate that. This is American Jewish Independence Day. That for American Jews, Israel has been their religion, basically. Support for Israel, backing for Israel, fighting for Israel, demonstrating for Israel. And literally, as we do on the high holidays, actually every weekend in synagogue, saying a prayer for Israel. Israel was the religion for most non-Orthodox American Jews. 
That, that's over. That's going to be really impossible going forward. But the system has so much momentum in it. So BB spoke in Washington. He got a standing ovation from APAC. And I'm thinking, you guys are giving a standing ovation to a guy who put together a government who wouldn't recognize your children, mixed marriages, as Jews, who wouldn't allow the women standing here to read from Torah at the Wailing Wall, and who uh, is ready to change the Israeli legal system in ways that would be appalling to any of you lawyers in the audience. But um, what's happened with these Jewish organizations is that they become so disconnected from the community base, I would say, the young base, that they're just like, um, they're just on autopilot. Israeli prime minister, we applaud, okay? But by, they've also really, I think, begun to lose their moral footing. APAC has gone into the, become an actual PAC and endorsed candidates in the last campaign, including a number of Republicans who were election deniers, who voted against seating this very president. Now, that is such a, that, that, that bespeaks an organization that's completely lost its moral footing, that says it is more important to me as the American Israel Public Affairs Committee to support congressmen who support Israel than to support congressmen who support the U.S. Constitution. But this is what, you know, the thing with extremists is that that's what they do. They take you to places, you, this is what Trump does. He takes you to places you never should go to. But when you hitch your wagon to them, again, it's why I always said about extremists in the Middle East. In the Middle East, extremists go all the way and moderates tend to just go away. And the other point I always made was that there's only one good thing about extremists. They don't know when to stop. And so in the end, they do themselves in. Now, the most dangerous kind of extremists I ever covered in the Middle East were the extremists who knew when to stop. Now, my concern about what we see in Israel, this government, some of these characters, is that they will go all the way. And you'll never know to finally answer your question, John, you know, what is the break point, whatever, but we'll wake up, you know, 10 years from now and we'll know what happened. You know, obviously, being the Israeli in this conversation, hearing you talk about, you know, the option of American Jews losing their religion and their religion being Israel is, is very dispiriting, yeah. to say the least. I mean, I think it should concern all of us, not only me as an Israeli. But I do want to wonder about one thing. Obviously, this is a very different Israeli government. It's a far-right government. Israel never had this kind of government before, right? But you need to put this in the perspective of the populism that has taken over the world. Right. I mean, Ben Gvir is not detached. Israel has its own security issues. It has idiosyncrasies, but it's not detached from the issue of populism. Now, you, Tom, live in a country in where tens of millions of people still believe the election was rigged. You, Jonathan, live in a country in where populism basically led you to drive over a financial cliff with Brexit. Why would you, again, as the top representatives of, of, of diaspora Jews, why would you think that Israel would be exempt from these kinds of uh, phenomenons. I mean, th isn't it natural that we will also be part, and I'm not in any way defending it. I'm just saying that it's part of that. I, I see it. Maybe it's my mistake, but I see it as part of that as well. Well, you know, you need. I, I've said this before. I follow Israeli politics very closely because for me, Israel is to wider trends in civilization what off-Broadway is to Broadway. Mm -hmm. You said it's a harbinger of <laughs> things start Western there in miniature yeah. and then they go to Broadway. So airline hijacking really got perfected there, went to Broadway. Suicide bombing got perfected there, went to Broadway. Building a wall, where did that happen first? Happened in Israel and went to Broadway. Uh, and so when Israel formed a national unity government, I actually did a column saying, wow, could this be a harbinger mm -hmm. of 
where we're going in America. So you're absolutely right. Israel is, its political processes and dynamics are very much part of a wider global trend. And the way I would put it, um, it, it, it has different drivers in Israel. Some of it's, you know, uh, secular religious, some of it's uh, ethnic, you know, Oriental Jews and, and, and Western Jews. But uh, to me, the true common denominator, uh, the real poison in this well is social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I followed how Netanyahu used social media before this election. Look what they did to the um, uh, members of Bennett's party to get them to break. I mean, they basically made their life hell on social media. During the campaign, look how he used social media to delegitimize Mansour Abbas, to delegitimize the deal with Lebanon. These were all lies. I mean, basically, the stuff that he put out. But it, it, just, it is such poison. And I think we will only understand in 10 years the damage that social media has done to democracies. Because what these technologies and social media do is they make inefficient authoritarians really very efficient. And they make democracies ungovernable. That's the real problem uh, with these. And I, I see that you know, as, as the, I'm not saying there aren't other social economic factors. Um, I, I have no illusions about the Palestinians. To me, to me the, the party Israel is missing now. It has a one state party with restraint. It has a one state party without restraint. What is completely missing is a separation party, not a peace party but a party that every day is asking itself and coming with Israeli creativity. And I've said this before, Israel's so creative in so many ways around water, around agriculture, around technology. Where is the creativity around separation? I I don't see any of it anywhere. How could Israel have had five elections and separation was not on the agenda? That's a failure of nerve of the Israeli center left, it seems to me. I am not a friar when it comes to the Palestinians. They're seriously messed up. Uh, the Palestinians, and um, which is why the Arabs, in many ways, gave up on them. But um, that's why I, I'm always looking for ways to separate. Now, I also am perfectly capable of saying there may not be a way. You know, there may not be a way for Israel to separate safely and securely. But I sure like to see Israel apply its creativity to that much more than it has. That's my critique. I think we've made the case very clearly that it's not in your interest or theirs to have a one-state solution. But that's so clearly where this is now going. And I want to make sure that I'm one voice out there saying, where's the where's the creativity? How could you have five elections? And Merits didn't even have this as a as a plan. I I I'm that's a failure of the Israeli left. And of course, if Palestinians respond to what you've just described by tailoring their message and their struggle to be one that is fitted to a one-state reality, and they make it a civil rights movement, then again, you know, in which they say, forget, we don't, we're not after land, we just want one vote, we want the same access in this one society we live in. Though that American generation, that University of Wisconsin generation that you mentioned before, uh, would find themselves far, very struggling to oppose that message. But I want to ask you, go back Can to I your- Can I say one, one thing one, on that, John? I mean, I yeah. Mean, it's, it's amazing to me, again, I think this is about the deficiency of the Palestinian leadership now. Imagine that Palestinians announced a million-person hunger strike or blocking of every road in the West Bank. Right. We're just going to block every road in the West Bank, but with one difference, which they never do. And we're going to have a pamphlet that says, we are blocking every road on the West Bank, point number one. And point number two, we are doing it in order to deliver the Arab Peace Initiative. 
Palestinians are they they throw stones, they engage in violence against Israelis, they they go on network TV all over the world. They're very good at complaining about Israel. Well, understandably, I, I, I get it. But if you don't come with a map, if the stone you throw, if the blockade you do on the road is not with a map, okay, if it's the, that's the failure of BDS, you know, to, to me. Yeah, I mean, if it doesn't come with a map, you're going to lose me. I'll tell you that. I'm not going for that. And I think that's the failure of of Palestinians. And and that's because look, they they've got an enormous. What would the Kurds give for one day of global attention to the Palestinians? Yeah. What would the Kurds give? And they, the fact that their enemy was Israel has given them enormous attention that wouldn't have been if it were any other opposition group. We know, because just look at Palestinians' relations between Jordan from 1948 to 1967. Yeah. And so if they won't pair their complaint, which I understand and, and, and is not without real merit, their complaint with a map that speaks to the center of Israel, that can speak to my old grocer in Jerusalem, they will fail. And that's why I've always said, you know, they kind of lost me in some way after Camp David with Barack. And this is my complaint. Again, you're gonna, you're really getting me ranting now. <laughs> this is a Jewish podcast, feel yes. free. Yes, Palestinians have agency. You have agency, okay? And stop thinking that you don't, all right? And um, they have agency. And uh, they have agency to talk to someone like Yonit in a way that wouldn't cost anything except internally to figure out exactly who they are and what they want. You know, you care about, I mean, you care so deeply about Israel. And I wonder if the next generation of American Jewish journalists who tend to write less, I don't know if they care less, but they tend to write less. Will it be differently if we have this, try to have this conversation 20 years, right, or 30 years? Look, you know, Jonathan and I could be separated at birth on this issue. Um, uh, we're brothers from different mothers. Um, <laughs> the same is true of David Brooks, Brett Stevens, David Ignatius, Fareed Zakaria. We're a generation who grew up, uh, were born into the kind of heroic, uh, you know, Israel, uh, who grew up in, in all sort of share just a rough, you know, belief in the, the rightness um, uh, for both Palestinians and Israelis to a two-state solution. I, I, I don't want to speak for others, but I can just tell you, if you look behind me at my newspaper, or I don't see a new generation coming up who uh, both cares deeply for Israel, but also believes that there must be a Palestinian state next to Israel for both reasons of justice and security. To defend that on campus today is just really, really difficult. So I'd rather study Chinese. You know, I mean, that that's really what the next, gen like, why get into that thicket? You know what I mean? So Johnny and I, we're stuck here and we can't get out of it and whatever, you know. Um, and it really is important to me, you know. But as I try to explain, you know, I I had a, the most searing experience of my life in, in, in Beirut, Lebanon between 1979 and 1984. I mean, I, I lived through the Lebanese Civil War, the Israeli invasion, the U.S. Marine bombing, the U.S. Embassy bombing, the Hama massacre. My own apartment was blown up. My driver's two daughters were, were killed in my apartment with his wife. I, it was the most searing. I've still not gotten over it. But I went through that experience with a group of Lebanese and, and, uh, and even some Palestinian friends there. And I'm as close to those people as anybody in the world. And we were on the Titanic together. 
And I love those people dearly. And all I'm about is really I, wanting to create a world where my Palestinian and Lebanese friends can can be in partnership and conversation and friendship with my Israeli friends. Mm-hmm. I am the you know Rodney King of this story. Can't we all <laughs> just get along? <laughs> my whole career would much better be called Always Looking for Minnesota. I've really <laughs> just been looking to recreate the Minnesota I grew up in, which was as a pre-George Floyd, you know. And I, I don't apologize for that. I don't regret it. You know, I was once having dinner with um, the editor of Haaretz. This was, a, this was about 15 years ago. And um, I asked him, why do you run, run my column? Because blessedly Haaretz runs my column in Hebrew and Sharkalauset runs it in Arabic. And that's so important to me that I can get under the hood in, 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 in Hebrew and in Arabic. And he said, Tom, you're, you're, you're the only optimist we have. And Uzi, Uzi Dayan was at the dinner, General Uzi Dayan. And he said, Tom, I know why you're an optimist. I said, why? He said, because you're short. <laughs> and I said, short? He said, yeah, you can only see the part of the glass that's half full. Okay. <laughs> and um, so that, that's who I am. So I don't do cynicism. So you need, I will be the last person calling for Israelis and Palestinians to um, have a two-state solution. You know, I will literally go out um, with my last breath saying that. I am not going to succumb to cynicism. I don't do that. So like there's an industry, a, li- a cottage industry mocking me on the internet from every, you know, every possible direction. Y'all have fun. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you another secret. I've never looked at Twitter. I've never looked at Facebook. And I've never smoked a cigarette. And my plan <laughs> is to die saying all three. <laughs> I, um, in my world, because I'm not on social media, in my world, Uni, everybody likes me. <laughs> and and I can't tell you how healthy that is. So I don't go around with my fists clenched. Did you see what Yonit Levy wrote about me? It, and, and that's an incredible energy suck. I don't believe the Twitter, I don't believe it's a real place. So when people say you got lit up on Twitter, I say, yeah, but five people just stopped me on the street to want to talk about my last column. Did you count them? So social media has so messed us up as democracies. Um, in such dangerous ways that I don't think we fully understand that. So I'm coming around to another point. I'll stop ranting, but that's my thought on all that. That would be a perfect place to stop. But for that, I just want to ask one last thing on as you as an American Jew. And you touched on it by invoking that notion of um, American Jewish Independence Day, an, an American Jewish community that is no longer identified or defined by its relationship with Israel. What, I wonder, fills the gap? Mm-hmm. And I particularly wonder whether the thing that fills the gap is the struggle against anti-Semitism, partly because it might fill an emotional you know, place, but also because there is more of it about, it seems, in America than there was before, whether it's Kanye West or Donald Trump. You know, what do you think fills the gap? And do you think it, how seriously do you think the new generation of American Jews are taking anti-Semitism? How seriously should they take it? It's a really good question, John. And I would say that um, I hope it's not anti-Semitism. I hope it's not anti-Semitism because I hope anti-Semitism doesn't rise to that crisis level. But I also hope it's not anti-Semitism because it's a completely negative campaign. It's about stopping something. And there's got to be a campaign of what we're for. And that's got to be built around social justice and tikkun olam. We've got to figure out what is the tikkun olam for American Jews. And again, not to abandon Israel, not to separate from Israel. I, 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 don't want, I don't advocate that. But as Israel goes down this path, 
if it is at the emotional core of so many Jewish American institutions, and you're going to see them split over this issue. I mean, they're, they're, every synagogue, every Jewish community is going to split over this issue. Are you, if, if this law passes, are you with a, a, the, a the legal reform law? Are you with a banana republic, Israel, where half the where the entire legal system is uprising against what the government's done, or are you not? So that's going to fracture every Jewish community. There has to be a positive agenda. It's got to be about tikkun olam. How do we make American society healthier and more pluralistic? And this is comes to the book that I'm writing now. But you know, w- without you know, without pluralism, uh, America is nothing. That, that that is our secret sauce. It's not. It, it's that that we can make out of many one, and that's what I worry about as American now. That's where my my writing is. You know, I'm I'm just say working on a book, and I just I ask myself two questions um, uh, at the end of this book. What's the most important story I saw or happened? in my four decades now as a journalist since 1978. And what's my favorite column? They're related. So my favorite, I think the most important thing that happened on my watch was actually the unification of Germany and the creation of the European Union. In my lifetime, on a continent that for 150 years brought us tribal wars, that three times brought America across the ocean to referee and to extinguish, in my lifetime, I saw a, another United States born, an imperfect one, nowhere nearly as united as ours, but amazingly, of 450 million people sharing a basic commitment to the rule of law, democracy, human rights, and free market. And my favorite column was at the height of the ISIS war in 2017, General Dave Goldfein, the head of the U.S. Air Force, um, took me with him on a visit to every U.S. air base in the Middle East at the height of the ISIS war. It was the most amazing reporting trip I've ever been on. And um, we went to every air base, watched the war close up. But we arrived at Al-Udaid Air Air Base uh, in the UAE the first night um, we got there. And by coincidence, Charlottesville had just happened. So Trump was basically saying, there are good people on both sides of a place where people have been killed and were racism. And your faithful columnist was in Al-Udaid Air Base uh, in the Middle East. You know, sometimes you're in the right place at the right time as a columnist. Sometimes you're really in the wrong place. <laughs> and I was in the wrong place. The entire world is talking about Charlottesville, and I'm in this crazy air base, you know, uh, off in the Gulf. And so I had to sit around and think, well, what, what do I write? And I, you know, I stared at my computer. I wrote my, my all-time favorite column. I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, you know, not in Charlottesville or whatever, but I just want to tell you about uh, who I'm traveling with. I'm out here traveling with the head of the U.S. Air Force. He's Jewish. The U.S. Air Force secretary, she's a woman. Her uh, chief executive officer is an African-American Air Force lieutenant colonel. The commander of our base um, here uh, is Armenian-American. His deputy is Lebanese-American. Our guard is uh, from a Hispanic background. And we just were briefed on intelligence by Colonel Yang. Which part of this sentence don't you understand? We are who we are. We are powerful. We are respected. We have influence because of who we are that we can make out of many one. And my number one project is focusing on that, highlighting it, ensuring it. Because I am an American, you know, I, I believe in Madeleine Albright. We are the indispensable nation. Without us, there, there, there's, there's nothing. And that's why, to end my message to Joe Biden, is going to be, Joe, uh, you may not be interested in Jewish history, but Jewish history is going to be interested in you.
you are going to have to step up in ways that no American president has ever done to protect this Jewish state. It was such a pleasure and a privilege talking to you, Tom. I mean, well, I was uh, fearful of two columnists and one television uh, anchor. <laughs> we might not have common ground, but we did find what to talk about. because Brothers from different mothers. <laughs> <laughs> you and him, for sure. Not in every issue, but on this one, I think. I will not Tom, disagree. we're hugely grateful. Thank you so much for that. So fun. Well, you, you, uh, you inspired me. So thank you for having me and, and best of luck. Well, brother from a different mother, I did not have that on my Tom Friedman interview bingo card. I did not expect him to go there. But, you know, look, he is a three-time Pulitzer winner and really so seasoned in reporting covering this region that that's um, that was great to hear that. I think, um, you know, he and I would have different perspectives on some things, but I think the way in which he does always look for a solution somehow, and yet you feel even he and it does who does have this kind of sunny minnesota lake wobegon optimism it's really being stretched isn't it it's being tested um by the current situation even he is struggling to find the silver lining in this particular cloud but it was great to really hear him sort of kick back and and develop those thoughts and obviously people encounter his ideas normally in the sort of capsule form of a column and here he was able to sort of expand outward whether you like agree or disagree with everything he's been saying over the years he is somebody who is central in commentary in the english language on the middle east and uh it was great to hear that sort of at length. And we should stress to our listeners, we did not bring in uh, him on unholy because he is your brother from another mother. We had other issues to ask. But I, I, I find that what you, we should remember about Tom constantly is the fact that even if you agree or disagree or you're upset at what he says about Israel, you, he cares deeply about this country. He knows about it a lot. He's been, you know, back and forth a million times. Um, and... You know, when I think, again, as the Israeli in this conversation, what about the next generation, right? I mean, the thing to fear is not be people being critical of Israel, but the thing to fear is people not caring. Um, yeah. And to me, I mean, there's so much in what he said that was incredibly interesting. And to see, you know, what what this government looks like and also not only, but how this region looks like from from the outside, I think is um, is fascinating. And interesting from the point of view of our business and our trade, that list he gave of journalists in the American media, Jewish, most of them, not only, or only, but who really have focused and sort of obsessed over Israel over the years. And he says he looks over his shoulder and he doesn't see a new wave of similar journalists and column, columnists, commentators, similarly obsessed with it. And that is just a, another sign of that drifting way that we've charted on the podcast for a long time time one way or another but just another proof of it uh, we have awards to hand out so tradition is tradition uh we are going to do the chutzpah award first somehow i find myself doing these more than you jonathan just saying but mine is uh treading carefully into your territory and that is to um, pick Andrew Bridgen, who is a Tory MP. And he uh, said this uh, recently. Uh, he was discussing the issue of uh, COVID vaccines. And he's making more and more, he was making more and more claims that vaccines were killing many people and that the damage was being covered up. But then he took it a step further and said, and I quote, uh, it is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Now, I think we've been over this once or twice on our podcast. We, um, how shall we say this, vehemently oppose 
anyone who talks or compares this in any way, vaccines that are meant to help the human race and have helped uh, the human race, in fact, to uh, the Holocaust. I don't know why people don't listen to us more, Jonathan, but I think it's okay if we also point out that he uh, has been suspended for saying this. But still, I just can we just have enough? It's enough with these people who are comparing vaccines to the Holocaust. Like enough. I think un- people are very clear that unholy is getting really annoyed and fed <laughs> up with people um, using the Holocaust to make some point about the vaccines, um, even if it wasn't a spurious point, and it is. It's just, you know, get another comparison and leave our history and experience well alone. It's nothing to do with you, Andrew Bridgen, and stop cheapening and exploiting the memory of the Holocaust. In Cheeria um, news, uh, although, you know, a, a gleam of hope coming out of a, a bleak situation, I thought for Mensch, we would echo the Genesis Foundation, which hands out its annual Genesis Prize, which has been, you know, Jewish journalists like to call it the Jewish Nobel Prize. It usually goes for a sing, you know, a lifetime achievement for a single Jew who's done something, you know, wonderful over a lifetime. This time, it is going going to a group, uh, namely Jewish activists in war torn Ukraine, and the organizer said they wanted to recognize the extraordinary nature of events over the last eleven months, and they've decided to depart from the usual custom. Uh, and instead make a collective award to those who, um, you know, followed the lead of Ukraine's president, courageous president Volodymyr Zelensky, and stood up for Jewish values of freedom, human dignity and justice. And interestingly, the money won't go to, you know, even a group of individuals. Instead, it's going to go to groups working to alleviate the suffering in Ukraine. So I think they are um, obvious winners of one war, the Jewish Nobel. And why not say that they are um, winners too? of our Mensch of the Week award. Agreed. See, no dissent on this issue. I would want to point out that this is not really Mensch Chutzpah, just a challenge, maybe have a new category. So I wanted to mention this posted on Twitter this week. I, th- I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's Orge Castellano who wrote, I'm really curious, is there something that isn't Jewish, but somehow feels Jewish to you? I love this question. Jonathan, any answers? It's great, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, for a long time, I know I have a very good old friend of mine who used to say, um, Miriam uh, used to say that she grew up thinking the word traips was Yiddish, <laughs> and she thought the word aggravation was Yiddish. But the way they were used in her home, both words, I've been traipsing around the shops, like schlepping. It sounded to her like Yiddish. She was shocked when she discovered regular non-Jewish, non-Yiddish speaking folk Allowed to use say those words. words. So I think it's in that category, but there's there's a few other examples there. What you can pick out some of the choice examples. Well, from from what they wrote as this thread that comes out after this thing, which is uh, very uh, cool. You know, I, I like to give it to people. I'm just going to say that are not Jewish, but are let's let's admit they're supposed to be Jewish, right? I mean, come on. Uh, for example, uh, Rachel Maddow. Bradley Whitford, who played Josh Lyman in The West Wing. I mean, obvious Jewish, even just like, you know, Jewish adjacent. I'm uh, th- yeah. This is obvious, right? I'm just saying Rachel Brosnahan from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Like, oh, exa- yeah. I was with you until Rachel Brosnahan because I think that's all part of the controversial, controversial Jew face thing. And also, I don't think she seems Jewish. But the others, absolutely. And Bradley Whitford, I mean, you know, it's scandalous that he's not Jewish because Josh Lyman is one of those definitive TV Jews. 
Agreed. Agreed. And there's some people who really surprised me because there's a thread or an answer to all of this. There was like uh, Seth Meyers, not Jewish. Very surprising. Just saying. Adam Driver, sadly, not Jewish. You know, there are other things here. I, I would have to say the prompt is like something and not someone, but we're going there pretty easily. We are. There's plenty of fun to be had by all the family with that um, <laughs> particular question. It's like a Jewish board game. Um, Podcasting is, is very Jewish. And very yeah, Jewish. Po- which podcasts are very Jewish? I think definitely this one. Uh, <laughs> if you have enjoyed it, please do um, spread the word. You can comment and review and rate on you know wherever you get your podcasts, but also on social media at Unholy Podcast on. Uh, Facebook and Instagram and do generally tell people uh, all about us. And we shall uh, remind our co-host and our listeners that this Sunday we are actually doing this for two years. So I'm just telling you there is a statute of limitation. You could have, when you signed the dotted line, Jonathan, you could have escaped after a year, 11 months and three and a half weeks. You just missed that. You're stuck. You're stuck here. Uh, we shall thank Sarah Thanglis to Gaia Glazer and uh, Omer Primat, Yair uh, Bashan, and Rom Atik. And we shall meet next week, John. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.